Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This time last week, I was in Cambridge in England, where it was much cooler than it is here. And Cambridge is a beautiful town, renowned for the great university that was established there in the 1200s. Uh, but the town itself is even older than that. And it is full of wonderful sites, ancient buildings, uh, beautiful botanical gardens, all sorts of amazing things to do and see. And one of the things that is interesting is that in the midst of all of the wonders of Cambridge, there is a marvel that is of recent vintage uh, that is one of the top attractions in Cambridge. And this particular marvel is a clock called the Chronophage. And the Chronophage uh, was named by its inventor, John C. Taylor, who's a British billionaire who invented all sorts of things. And chronophage comes from the Greek and literally means time eater. And this clock, when you see it, is on the corner, probably the most prominent corner in Cambridge, right across from King's College. It would be as if it were at the four corners of law in Charleston. And this clock is huge. It's as tall as this pulpit, if not taller. And in the center of the window that is over the clock, there is this enormous solid gold disc full of concentric circles like a shield. And mounted on top of the disc is a giant locust that is larger than I am that is sitting up at the top as this thing whirs and ticks. And when it gets to the 59th second of each minute, this locust at the top opens its mouth wide and makes a crunching sound to show that that minute is forever gone. And then when it strikes the hour, instead of a chime, there's the clanking of chains on a coffin. Now, you might think this is rather grim. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is that there's always a crowd of people standing in front of this thing. And the guy who commissioned it instructed that there should be an inscription graven in stone at the bottom of the window where this clock is. And that inscription is the first part of 1 John 2.17, which says, the world is passing away along with its desires. It doesn't incorporate the second part, which is whoever does the will of God abides forever, but it's clearly rooted in that scriptural view. And those of you that are students of the Old Testament will certainly remember that the locust is a very strong reminder of the passage from Joel that talks about the years the locust has eaten. And that particular passage in Joel says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. And when the guy who put this clock up there at the cost of several million dollars was interviewed about why he had chosen this particular monument to include at his old college in Cambridge, he said the reason he did it was because of his disdain for modern art 
and that the majority of modern art is superficial, there's nothing in it, and he wanted to do something that was thought-provoking. Well, it's certainly thought-provoking. If you stand in front of this thing with this awful, huge locust, which makes a cockroach look like a beanie baby, um, eating every moment of your life, it is shocking. It gets your attention, and it begs the question, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your time? What are you focusing on? What is the ultimate goal of your life? And I think the point of this is trying to shock people into awareness. What are you doing with the time that has been given to you? And I think that is very much what we see happening in this passage today, the passage that is the Sunday school teacher's bane when the little children come home and say, what did you learn from Sunday school? We learned that we're supposed to hate our parents. In case you didn't realize it, that is not actually what the point of this passage is. So we're going to unpack what Jesus is up to in this perplexing passage. And before we do that, I want us to look just a little bit at the context of what's going on here. So if you look in Luke's gospel, and remember when the gospels were written, there were no chapter marks, there were no verses, it was just all one book. Immediately before this is the parable of the king's banquet, where the king is hosting this great banquet and sends out invitations to the people that are close to him, asking them to come. And of course, in those days, an invitation from the king was pretty much a command performance. But despite that, the answers he gets back are, I'm so sorry, I can't come, I have bought a cow. Or, I'm so sorry, I can't come, I have gotten a wife. So it's excuse after excuse of why they can't come to be with the king. And so immediately after that, we get this parable. So the next thing that happens is right at the end of Jesus talking in today's gospel, there's one verse that for some reason the lectionary leaves out that says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then immediately after that come three parables in a row about the lost sheep that the good shepherd goes out to find, the parable of the lost coin that all the efforts in the world go to finding that coin, and then the parable of the lost son, also known as the parable of the prodigal son. And it's no accident to today's gospel passage is right in the middle of all those because that's the key to unlocking and understanding this. And I want to take just a little brief detour um, before we get to the meat of the gospel lesson to talk a little bit about what do you do when you're reading the Bible and you don't understand what's going on. If you're like me, your first inclination is, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to skip that part. Um, let me suggest to you that you are missing out if you're doing that, because the hard parts, the things that appear not to make sense at the beginning, are often the parts where the real gold of the kingdom of God lies. So a couple of things to consider. The first thing is that when you are looking at Scripture, you should consider the context, which we just did. Look at what's going on around the passage that you're looking at. Look at what the themes are, look at what's going on in the country. Um, all of those kinds of things 
figure out the context. The next thing is to use a great Anglican principle that we find rooted in our prayer book, Articles of Religion, the 39 articles from way back in the 1500s. And Article 20 of that gives us excellent advice that is all too often ignored in interpreting scripture. And what it says is this, the church may not so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another, which is a way of saying that scripture does not contradict itself. And if there's an appearance of contradiction, what we need to do is look at all that scripture has to say on a topic before we try to figure out what it actually means. So if you see a passage that says, no one who does not hate his mother and father is worthy to come after me, you also have to take into account the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother, and realize you can't say it's one or the other, but somehow it's both. So what you have to do is to work through all of these things to figure out what is actually the message of the whole revelation of God and Scripture. The third thing is to remember that Scripture is composed of different types of literature. There are some things that are history, there are some things that are poetry, there are some things that are direct commands, there are things that are moral instruction, and then there also are things where there are various literary devices that are used. And those of you that can remember way back to middle school English will remember that you might have learned about something that you thought was pronounced hyperbole until you learned it was actually hyperbole. And hyperbole is exaggeration or gross exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. And that is exactly what we have in today's passage. And we will unpack that a little bit more later. Jesus is grossly exaggerating in order to make a point. And there is a great uh, lesson about this from the uh, wonderful New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce when he's talking about this passage. He says this, this is a hard saying in more senses than one. It's hard to accept, it's hard to reconcile with the general teaching of Jesus. The attitude it seems at first glance to recommend goes against the grain of nature, and it also goes against Jesus' law of love to one's neighbors, which Jesus emphasized and radicalized. What can it mean then? It means that just as property and money can become, come between us and the kingdom of God, so can family ties. The interest of God's kingdom must be paramount with the followers of Jesus, and everything else must take second place to them, even family ties. If hating one's relatives is felt to be a shocking idea, Jesus meant it to be shocking, to shock the hearers into a sense of the imperious demands of the kingdom of God. We know that in biblical idiom, to hate can actually mean to love less. That hating, in this saying of Jesus, actually does mean loving less, is shown by the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10, which addresses the same topic. And in that passage it says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Matthew's gospel, these words are followed again by the saying that taking up the cross and following Jesus, the implications of this sequence being that giving one's family second place to the kingdom of God 
is one way we may be called to take up the cross. So there are a number of principles of interpretation that when you imply them can help you unpack what's going on in a passage. So moving toward the gospel passage, and I'd encourage you to follow along in your leaflet, you start off and see that there are great crowds that are following Jesus. And one of the issues that Jesus had was that he was, in some ways, like a carnival sideshow in the culture, that people just came to see what was going to happen next. And Jesus taught into that pretty often and invited people to come and see and learn more, but he's trying to show that it's not just about following him literally by walking down the path to see what happens next. There's more to it than that. So he then talks about family relationships, and he says anyone who does not hate father, mother, brother, or sister, and of course what he means here is that if you put too much emphasis on those relationships, it can distract you from the kingdom of God. It is not wrong or bad to love your family. Those are in fact good things, but as we know, it is not usually bad things that are the enemy of the best things. It is the good things that can get us in trouble. The second thing he talks about is taking up your cross and following Jesus. And the thing that is important about this is that it means something other than what we usually think. When we talk about our cross to bear, we usually think about some situation that's difficult or that person. You know, that person, that person in your life who is your cross to bear, dealing with that person. That is not what Jesus means. What he means is that person is actually you. You are that person. You are the one who needs to be crucified yourself and with all of its selfishness and worldly desires needs to be crucified, that sin nature that Jesus died on the cross for us to take away to bring us back to himself. We need to put that sin nature to death and live fully into following Jesus. And then he uses this beautiful image of building a tower and counting the cost. And this is such an important image for us today because we are in an era of instant everything. Those of us that have lived in Charleston for a while are shocked at how quickly some of these new buildings seem to just go up overnight. And one of the things about this is that our lives are often like that. We are swayed to and fro by what seems like a good idea at the time. And instead of counting the cost of thinking and praying and discerning what God's will is for us, what our foundation should be, we just get on board with whatever the latest thing is. But what Jesus is saying here is that we need to stop. We need to get off that hamster wheel of our lives and instead sit down, think about what are we building? Instead of thinking, maybe when I'm old, I'll stop and think about that. We need to be deliberate and purposeful, even as young people, about what are we building and what we want to build. And is the foundation in our life adequate for what we're trying to build on top of it? Then Jesus uses the example of the guy who was unable to finish because his foundation was inadequate to what he was trying to build. And so often for us, we want to rush to the building without doing the foundation work. And then he uses the example of the king going to war, needing to be strategic, to look at what the odds are that are arrayed against him 
to figure out how to proceed instead of just charging headlong into every battle. And then Jesus sums it up by saying, if you do not renounce all, you cannot be my disciple. And you may think, well, the gospel is supposed to be good news. That doesn't sound like good news to me because I haven't renounced all. Well, neither have I, neither has any of us. But I would submit to you that this is actually the best news that there could ever be. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. There's a great uh, commentary on this from the uh, theologian and scholar Jeff Robinson. He says this, if we take a closer look at the surrounding context of this passage, the nutshell meaning of Jesus' distressing words is as clear and concise as it is radical and revolutionary. Jesus is telling his followers, if you would be a Christian, I must have it all. We may be scandalized by the word hate, but I suspect in stumbling over Jesus' plain talk, we can miss the real scandal of this text. There will be rivals warring for supremacy over the throne of our hearts, but our love for Jesus must defeat every one of them. So given this, there are three things that I would like us to look at in brief this morning and consider about how this passage might apply to us, to you and to me today in Charleston in the year 2022. And the first thing is to beware of this idea of Christianity and, not Christianity alone, following Jesus alone, but Christianity plus something else. And in that great book, The Screwtape Letters, where C.S. Lewis looks at the whole psychology of temptation, he says this, and this is the devil speaking about how to get a man's soul. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and, you know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and politics, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the real faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. We want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means to an end preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that as a means to anything, even social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a good thing which the enemy, God, demands, and then work him on to the stage at which he values Christianity only because it may produce social justice. Soon faith becomes only a means to an end, and the other cause rather than just being a distraction, becomes his actual focus. My friends, we live in an age of distraction, and we live in an age that tells us we can have it all. We can do everything we want, and the more that we do, and the more we chase down everything, the more that we can self-actualize, and be fulfilled, and live a wonderful life where we have everything that we could possibly want. But the problem with that is that it's a lie. 
It keeps us running on the hamster wheel all the time, trying to have all of these different things that we think will make us happy, checking all of the boxes off. And the problem is that when we do that, we are devoted to nothing. You may be aware of the uh, word multitasking that became such a huge buzzword in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we were told that now in this digital age that people that are growing up in the digital age can multitask in the way that we old fogies like me can't do. But the research actually shows that it's not true, that we can't multitask, that when we try to multitask, it just takes our attention to everything and ratchets it down lower and lower so that we're not able to fully be present in anything. And the problem with that is that when it comes to our faith, it is disastrous because we are not all in with Jesus because we are one foot in this world, one foot in the kingdom of God, and we just keep trying to work it out and have it all. But the problem is it doesn't work that way. Jesus tells us we have to renounce everything else, even the things that are good, because of their tendency to become idols that we worship. Lewis also addresses this in his great book, The Great Divorce, um, that we'll be talking about this fall. And on the frontispiece of that book, he has a quotation from the Scottish theologian George MacDonald that says this, no, there is no escape. There is no heaven with a little bit of hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. And the problem with most of us, including the preacher, is that we have things that we want to hold on to. It may be a besetting sin, it may be a relationship, it may be just something that we think is really important, and we want to have that be Christianity and whatever this thing is. But the problem with that is that when we are not completely sold out to Jesus, we cannot receive what he desires to give us. St. Augustine talks about how God longs to give us so many wonderful things that are better than we can desire or pray for, but that our hands are so full of the world that we're unable to receive them. The second thing that I think is worth our consideration from this passage is foundations, the idea of foundations. What do you want to build? And one of the things that we know, because we live in a city that has a lot of stuff that's built on fell land, is that when you build on land with an inadequate foundation that's not strong, your building will tilt, your walls will crack, and ultimately the whole thing may fall down. And we live in a world that tells us over and over again, go for the gusto, go do this, go get on board that train, go follow that dream, whatever it may be. But we don't stop to count the cost. We don't stop to think about, do we have a foundation that can support that? And this is particularly true in relationships, where we rush into relationships without having done the work to see if we are in a place to be in a relationship. There are so many areas of our lives that we do not have an adequate foundation. And I would encourage you to take a few moments this week and look at your life and think about what are you trying to build? What are you trying to build in your life? What are your priorities? And are they the priorities of the kingdom of God? And if they are, if you want more than anything to be following Jesus with all your heart, 
Are you laying a foundation that enables that? Because if you have no time left in your life because you're so busy with everything else, even if you think you're laying a foundation for Jesus' kingdom, you're not because your time is going into building a different structure. And lastly, and perhaps most surprisingly, the message of this passage this morning is that Jesus longs to give us joy. He longs to give us joy. He does not want us to settle for anxiety and stress and problems and pain. He does not promise he will give us easy circumstances, but he longs to give us joy. And you see that in the parable that is right before this passage of the king wanting to invite people into this gorgeous banquet in his royal palace to be with him, to feast on sumptuous food, to drink the best wines, to enjoy fellowship with no care in the world at all. And instead of taking that invitation, he gets responses like, I'm sorry I can't come, I bought a cow. How often are we like that? We substitute a cow for the kingdom of God. It is a sad thing that Satan has bewitched our eyes that we don't know how much God loves us and how much he entreats us to come and enter into his joy. And in case we missed it, right after this passage comes the king himself, Jesus, first going out to look for that lost sheep, not wanting to have the whole flock with one missing, but going out and finding that sheep to come and enter the joy of Jesus or going out to find that lost coin that's been lost and abandoned and hidden in the dirt, but to go and seek after that as if it were the most precious thing. And then lastly, that most beautiful one of all, the parable of the lost son, going out, the father going down the road after the son who has rejected him in every possible way to invite him into the joy of the banquet where the fatted calf is killed and a new robe and ring are put on him and there is rejoicing because the one who was lost is found. My friends, that is what Jesus longs to give us and we want to substitute for it the rags of this world. Nothing we give up could even compare to what God wants to give us. Lewis puts it this way in another passage. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that whatever he abandoned, even in plucking out his own right eye, has not truly been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high country of heaven. My friends, Jesus longs to give us joy, so we would do well to watch out for double-mindedness. It reminds me of an analogy someone told me once. Imagine that you were out on Charleston Harbor yesterday and the beautiful weather and that part of the day when the sun was out and you were having a great time with your friends and you accidentally fell off the boat. Well, that's not a good thing to have happen. So you're in the water and you see other responsible people two Boston whalers coming towards you to rescue you. And they both throw in a life preserver and you think, this is great, I am gonna be saved. 
But you notice one Boston whaler's pointed back toward downtown, the other one's pointed toward Sullivan's Island. And you think, well, I want to be extra sure that I'm safe, so I'm going to grab both these life preservers. Well, when the boats take off, you can't hold on to both those life preservers. And if you try, what will happen is that you will drown. And that is part of what Jesus is trying to tell us here. We can't have all the world and have the kingdom of God. We have to choose, just as we saw in Deuteronomy, and that he prays that we will choose life. So watch out for double-mindedness. Think about what kind of foundation you're laying, and remember that Jesus' ultimate goal in calling us to renounce and to enter through the narrow gate is to give us joy, the joy of life with him in the here and now, and the joy and eternal security of life and his courts forevermore. I want to close with some of the words that we sang as we came in and that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, that reminds us that the eternal word of God gives us the surest foundation for our life. If you would close your eyes and bow your heads, let's use this as a prayer. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame will not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Lord, may it be so. Amen.